His Catholic Majesty cedes to the United States, in full property and sovereignty, all the territories which belong to him, situated to the eastward of the Mississippi, known by the name of East and West Florida. The adjacent islands dependent on said provinces, all public lots and squares, vacant lands, public edifices, fortifications, barracks, and other buildings, which are not private property, archives and documents, which relate directly to the property and sovereignty of said provinces, are included in this article. The said archives and documents shall be left in possession of the commissaries or officers of the United States, duly authorized to receive them. Treaty of Amity, Settlement, and Limits between the United States of America and His Catholic Majesty, 1819. Welcome to Civics and Coffee. My name is Alicia, and I am a self-professed history nerd. Each week, I'm going to chat about a topic on U.S. history and give you both the highlights and occasionally break down some of the complexities in history and share stories you may not remember learning in high school, all in the time it takes to enjoy a cup of coffee. Hey peeps, welcome back. In the aftermath of the American Revolution, settlers flooded towards the Spanish-controlled area known today as Florida. Enticed with the offer of land grants and the potential promise of riches in new territory, colonists quickly took advantage of the weakened Spanish government to pursue their American dream. Facing ongoing attacks by the government and its militias, indigenous Americans fled to what they believed to be the safety of another country's territory hoping to escape the ongoing conflict with the United States and its military. But the American government had a focused eye on the landmass in the southeast and anxiously awaited for the perfect opportunity to take advantage. They got their wish when Andrew Jackson charged into Florida during what is known as the First Seminole War. So what exactly is the Seminole War? What did it do? Who was involved? Grab your cup of coffee, peeps. Let's do this. The Seminole War was actually a series of three conflicts between the United States and indigenous tribal members referred to as Seminoles. In the super Notes version, these wars were basically a result of the United States' push for desirable land held by Seminole members who, tired of broken promises and guaranteed land protection by the U.S. government, fought back in a failed effort to maintain their homes. The three wars occurred first from 1817 to 1818, then 1835 to 1842, and finally from 1855 to 1858. Today, though, I am focusing on the first Seminole War, where Andrew Jackson continued his efforts to control the indigenous population and enjoyed popular support from the frontier settlers itching to move into the rich soil of Florida. If you remember from my episode on the Battle of Horseshoe Bend, a group of warriors from the Muscogee, otherwise referred to as Creek tribe, fled in the aftermath of the attack led by Jackson. These warriors, known as Red Sticks, needed a place of safety where they could heal, regroup, and decide what other options they had. The best avenue was to head towards the territory held under Spanish control in the southeastern tip of the country. The Red Sticks, hoping for protection by the Spanish government, set up communities and planted crops. Enslaved Black Americans, determined to escape the bonds of forced servitude, also fled to Spanish Florida. 
both the various tribes and the escaped black men formed an unlikely, and in the United States' mind, potentially deadly, alliance. However, in the aftermath of the War of 1812, Spain's control and ability to protect this territory became tenuous, and the results proved disastrous for those seeking freedom from U.S. invasion and control. Seminole tribal members who lived in Spanish Florida since the early 1700s provided refuge for the escaped slaves. They lived and worked together in the same communities, and it was under the guise of reclaiming property that the United States military marched into the foreign territory and laid siege to various indigenous towns. The primary target in this endeavor was a fort built by the British during the War of 1812 on the Apalachicola River. The fort, no longer needed by the British, was now occupied by 350 black men, most of which were runaways. Jackson, who was enjoying a tide of goodwill by the American people due to his defeat of the indigenous tribes during the Battle of Horseshoe Bend, was commanding the Southern District for the army. Under instruction of his superiors, Jackson issued a demand to the Spanish representatives in Florida that the fort was a direct threat to the United States and therefore must be destroyed. The military post, Jackson argued, was a hazard to the United States due to its proximity to the U.S. border, just a scant 60 miles. If they failed to comply, Jackson warned, the United States would do it for them. The Spanish, tapped for resources, were not able to meet the U.S. demands. In response, the military built Fort Scott just across from the Spanish border in 1816. However, the only way to get supplies to the fort required traveling through Spanish territory up the Apalachicola River. While this action displeased Spain, they were not in a position to prevent it and provided no response. As some of Jackson's men moved up through the river, another contingent made its way south, eventually charging the fort and hammering it with cannon fire. The stronghold took quite a beating until hitting a powder magazine, blowing it apart. The explosion immediately killed 270 people, with several more dying from injuries in the days afterwards. Taking their prize, the United States swiped supplies in the aftermath, including guns and swords. The destruction of the fort angered local Hachiti chief Neamathla, who decided to retaliate by ambushing American soldiers, killing 34, as well as four children, and capturing six military wives. Tensions continued when soldiers from Fort Scott entered into Neamothla's village, known as Fowltown, to procure wood. Neamothla issued a warning to the commander of Fort Scott to stay out of tribal land, which only further angered the local military, increasing the already escalating tensions. This posturing on both sides led to a firefight on November 21, 1817, where five Seminoles were killed, and U.S. military leader Colonel David Twiggs burned the town to the ground. These violent encounters, along with the presence of runaway slaves and a desire to annex Florida, attracted the attention of James Monroe and his administration. On December 26, 1817, Secretary of War John C. Calhoun issued a directive to Jackson to focus his command on the area, writing, quote, the increasing display of hostile intentions by the Seminole Indians may render it necessary to concentrate all the contiguous and disposable force of your division upon that quarter. End quote. Jackson wasted no time. Commanding a force of over 3,000, including a large portion of Creek warriors led by William McIntosh, 
Jackson marched from Nashville and arrived at Fort Scott on March 9, 1818. He and his army attacked the town of Muskogee, a large Seminole outpost, burning it to the ground. Jackson's force seemed unstoppable as they continued their march, destroying almost everything they came into contact with, including over 300 homes. Jackson was successfully able to take over St. Mark's, where he captured two men, one an English citizen and the other a Tuskegee prophet by the name of Hilashiah. The prophet was hanged immediately upon capture and without trial. Jackson waited until after the trial to issue the hanging of the British subject, Alexander Opethnot. The decision to hang a British citizen put the relationship between the United States and Great Britain in jeopardy. British representatives were understandably angered at Jackson's execution of one of their citizens, especially considering the person in question wasn't on United States soil at the time of their capture. And though he was ordered to focus his attacks solely on indigenous holdings, Jackson seemed insatiable, charging ahead, capturing Spanish-held cities, further increasing the risk of an international incident. If he pushed too far, the government worried, Spain and Great Britain may join forces and declare war on the United States. Trying to avoid conflict and keep the peace, the U.S. returned all conquered territories belonging to Spain back to the Spanish monarch, despite Jackson's objections. And while amicable to the returning of their territorial holdings, the Spanish were at their limit with Florida and were seriously considering offloading it to the United States. Maintaining control of the territory was costly, and Spain could no longer afford the cost of a continued military presence or the cost of the individuals residing within the borders. So despite escalating tensions between the two countries, discussions began regarding the transfer of Florida to the United States. Negotiated between Secretary of State John Quincy Adams and Spanish diplomat Luis de Onis y González Vara, the treaty, known as the Adams-Onis Treaty or the Transcontinental Treaty, outlined the terms of the land transfer and established new borders for the United States. Finalized on February 22, 1819, the treaty stipulated that Spain would transfer the territory of Florida and give up its claims to the Oregon Territory in exchange for the United States' assumption of legal claims of American citizens against the Spanish government. And just like that, the United States further expanded its borders and now stretched from coast to coast. But what did that mean for the indigenous people who called Florida their home and the escaped individuals who chose freedom over servitude? Well, as you might imagine, it didn't end well. While it took years to complete the transfer, once the United States gained control of Florida, the natives of the territory were forced further inland and onto land inhospitable for crops or livestock. In 1823, the United States decided the best solution to the problem was to place the tribal nations onto a dedicated reservation. The U.S. entered into yet another treaty, this time the Treaty of Balti Creek. Under the terms of this agreement, the Seminoles agreed to rescind any claims to the land in Florida in exchange for a guaranteed reservation covering nearly 4 million acres. The designated area was along the interior of Florida, thereby cutting off the potential chances of trade with other countries. The tribesmen also had to agree to be, quote, lawful and return any runaway slaves back to the United States. Forced onto less-than-desirable land, the Seminole tribes still had to contend with ongoing encroachment by white settlers. 
Frontiersmen remained fearful of what the, quote, savages might do and wanted them out of Florida and relocated somewhere else. Again. This time, the push was for the Seminoles to move west and join their other tribal nations on the reservation that is located in what is today known as Oklahoma. As Jackson ascended to the presidency in 1828, the anti-Indian sentiment only continued to grow and Americans demanded to see the Seminoles and any other indigenous tribes relocated west across the Mississippi. After Congress passed the Indian Removal Act in 1830, the U.S. sent in representatives to negotiate with tribal leaders outlining terms to secure their move. Things looked promising when the Treaty of Payne's Landing was signed in 1832, but the treaty soon came to be another area of contention when the tribal leaders rescinded their authorization leading to the Second Seminole War in 1835. The question of land ownership and the desire to section off indigenous tribes continued to escalate throughout the first half of the 19th century, leading to the eventual forced relocation of several tribal nations with the Trail of Tears in the 1830s. While a minor brief military engagement for the United States, the First Seminole War made a long-lasting impact to the country and its varied citizens. Using the pretense of national security and reclaiming lost property, the U.S. managed to further expand its borders and force the relocation of thousands of indigenous individuals against their will. If you've been enjoying the show, please spread the word. You can do that through leaving a review on Podchaser, Apple Podcasts, or Good Pods, or by following the show on all the socials. I'm on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or is it Meta? Who knows? Anywho, I love engaging with you all, and if you want to request a topic, let me know either through social media or through the website at www.civicsandcoffee.com. Thanks, peeps. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of Civics and Coffee. If you want to hear more small snippets from American history, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining me, and I look forward to our next cup of coffee together.